This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 5.11 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 448 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Troy Warshall. Now, I first met Troy on the Operation Enduring Warrior Gala and realized that he had an incredibly powerful story that we needed to hear on this show. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the Marines, becoming a fighter pilot, volunteering to become a forward air controller, his work in Operation Enduring Warrior, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier and easier for other people to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Troy Warshall. Enjoy. Troy, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Um, we met for the first time on, I guess, live internet television the other day. So now we actually get a, a moment to kind of learn about each other. So welcome to the show today. Hey, James. Well, thank you very much. You know, we were we were very honored to have you as the MC for the first annual or first annual Operation Enduring Warrior Gala. And uh, because of COVID this year, we had to do it virtually. So it was a neat, uh, neat experience. And we really thank you for making it such a great success. Yeah, well, I was just a, a cog in the giant machine that is OEW. So I was just honored to be a be a part of that. And I'll be honest, I shat myself before. I've never done something like that before. It was way out of my comfort zone. <laughs> um, oh, you and me both, my friend. <laughs> so we'll get into that later and we'll talk beards and fundraising and all kinds of things. Um, where on planet Earth are we actually finding you today? So I actually live in Germantown, Maryland. I'm uh, just a little bit north of D.C., uh, you know, I got uh, I got drug kicking and screaming by the military from the the west coast of the United States out to out to the east coast, and uh, finally figured out that uh, of all the places to be unemployed, 
DC is probably a good area. So we just uh, put down roots here and managed to stay after I retired from the Marine Corps. Brilliant. Well, I like to start chronologically at the very beginning. So we'll talk about the West Coast. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Ah, okay. So uh, I was actually all over the place as a little kid. I was born in uh, in North Carolina. Uh, we moved around a little bit when I was younger. We moved to Indiana first and then eventually to Pennsylvania. Uh, both of my parents were Pennsylvania natives and uh, our our entire family dynamic is is all surrounded by the coal mining industry. Uh, our family had been coal miners for as long as I could remember, and my dad was the first member of his family who had uh, who had broken out of that mold and gone to college and and gone on to do something else. Uh, and he met my mom in in Pittsburgh, and and the rest is history from there. Um, you know, we we grew up. Uh, you know, mostly uh, eastern Pennsylvania near the Valley Forge area. Uh, you know, I was a you know typical young kid, always into something, doing uh, you know trying to get find some kind of trouble to get into. But uh, you know, I think that you know my parents and their their work ethic sort of uh, I guess tied into me and and the way that I that I was raised. Uh, you know, I I started my first job at thirteen working on a farm. And have never been unemployed a day except for uh, the day I got out of the Marine Corps uh, up until now. And uh, you know, it was a, it was a good opportunity as a kid growing up to to learn the value of hard work and and you know an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. And you know, there was there was never a shortage of of stuff that needed to get done. And fortunately, I was uh, you know I you know as a kid growing up, it's nice to have money because you. Now you get to buy things and get to do things you want to do and stuff like that. And it was, you know, I understood at an early age that uh, if I wanted to do something, I needed to work for it. And you know, my parents wholeheartedly embraced that and, and allowed me to do that. Brilliant. Well, I, I will grow up on a farm as well. And every time I have a guest who has that kind of childhood hands-on experience, um, I always ask them the same thing. So when you look back now, having gone through all the the um the crucibles that the military put you through how much do you attribute your personal grit to those early childhood farm years well i'll tell you what that's uh you know i i'll fast forward a little bit my my youngest son decided that uh that he wanted to go in the marine corps and uh as he was getting ready for officer candidate school i told him i said here's here's something you need to do uh, you need to go find a job doing manual labor outside in the heat to understand what you're getting yourself into because that's where you're where you're headed. You know, I don't I don't think I've ever worked a day any harder than bucking hay all day long until the field is clean. Uh, I mean, that's you know, and in fact, that's what I'm you know I'm telling our our folks at uh, at OEW that want to be mass athletes. I don't need superstars that can lift 500 pounds. I need you to be able to lift 50 pounds all day long. And that's the difference. I mean, that's, I think, uh, what set me up for success in the military. You know, I think the the physical aspect of it was never really that difficult. I think, uh, you know, my drive to be, to try and be the number one was where the difficulty came in because I would push myself. But, uh, you know, it's, when you're used to hard work and you're, uh, and you're, you know, conditioned to that and used to the heat and things like that and, and being uncomfortable and, and, you know, working hard all day long, 
you know, I think that sets you up for success uh, quite early on. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I can definitely relate. Um, I mean, I've told the story a thousand times, but, um, you know, I would come in disheveled in my, especially my junior school and the teachers would remark that I'd obviously been up watching TV all night and I hadn't. I'd been in the rain lambing, you know, or whatever emergency came and dad was a veterinarian. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I'm this incredibly resilient human being now, but there's no doubt in my mind that the kind of work ethic and that, that kind of misery level was uh, was baselined quite nicely as a farm child. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, there's things that depend you on, depend on you to stay alive, and you know you can't take a day off because animals need fed, and you know pastures have to be taken care of, and stalls cleaned, and and everything else. There's just there's never really a day off, and you sort of you know you get to that point where you know just get up and do it, uh, and it becomes second nature, and um, you know, it's, it's really amazing after a while that, uh, you know, that sort of continual work ethic and, and way of doing things. And then, you know, you find yourself later on in life, it's just like, well, this kind of sucks, but it's still got to get done. So let's get on with it and get it done. Yeah. I think that's an important point. It doesn't suck any less. You just, you just get on with it. It's not like you're frolicking around like a Disney movie. It's still cold and wet. <laughs> exactly. Hot. Um, yep. we, you mentioned in Pennsylvania about that being, you know, having a, a coal background. Now, just as a pure tangent and no political element to this at all, um, you now are involved in the nuclear side too. So with that being historically a fuel, kind of what's your philosophy on coal as a fuel? And, and you know, what do you see as, as us still using that? Or are there any cleaner things that you've come across in your career? You know, it's interesting. I was uh, I was for a while the Department of Defense lead for shore-based nuclear power. Uh, so, sort of transitioned on since then. But you know, what that really did was open up my eyes to what is out there in the realm of the possible for clean energy and the ability to meet the power requirements of of what we have here in the United States. You know, we've been very fortunate. Uh, you know, in our history, we we built small grids that became bigger grids and bigger grids, and and they've been uh, they've been able to take care of the the load that we have. But as we look at climate change crisis and and things like that, you know, that's you know whether you you believe in that or not doesn't really matter. Um, you know, I think you know we we need to look at all our available energy options and and sources and resources. And how do we mold that all together to make sure that we can meet the requirements of the country and the people and do that most economically and with the most resilience so that, you know, we can provide the requirements that the people need, but also, you know, be resilient against cyber attack, against, uh, you know, potential enemy uh, or adversary uh, attacks against our grid and things like that. I mean, it's, we could go on for hours about that, but, uh, you know, it was quite fascinating as we were as we were looking at the new uh, nuclear technology, and it's it's really exciting to see where they're going. The you know the uh, the nineteen fifties design nuclear power plant. If you would look at some of the the small modular reactors that are coming up, the you know essentially solid state reactors that uh, could be built in a factory and then turned out for operations in in different places, remote locations, and able to supply power for years and years and years, basically just unattended uh, because the the reactor self-regulates. It it generates the power you need. It follows the load. 
it's it's really fascinating and and exciting to see what uh, American ingenuity and and uh, industry is coming up with. And I think it's going to be, uh, quite frankly, I think it's going to be a wave of the future because, you know, as we're as we're getting away from you know fossil fuels and things that produce uh, higher carbon, uh, you know, outputs. You know, the only way that we can get the power density that we can from from liquid or solid fuels comes from nuclear. There's nothing else on the periodic chart that in any combination that comes anywhere close to the ability to put out that much that much power. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, it's it's a you know hell of an insight, especially having you know coming from a coal mining background, working with nuclear now. I listened to Elon Musk on Joe Rogan's show a few weeks ago, and he, talk, he really spent the whole show talking about SpaceX and talking about Tesla. And of course, there is, there's a kind of irony that, yes, electric cars at the moment are still powered somewhat by fossil fuels. You know, the electricity is coming from that. But I think that the beginning of 2020, one of the big lessons that Mother Nature gave us was, hey, if you stop choking us out with with uh, fossil fuels look at you know we're we're repairing the ozone layer we're, the air is cleaner so like you said with the argument my my thing has always been just deal with what you can see if you're in la and you saw the smog lift it doesn't matter about global warming you know that that's a, a measurable visible element that improves when we're not spitting out carbon so but to have Absolutely. a a clean non-fossil fuel way of powering the future these electric cars I think that combination could be game changing. Oh, absolutely! I mean, I think it's uh, it's just phenomenal to see where we're headed in this if we give it the opportunity and the support that it requires. You know, the uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was originally designed when the technology was a little bit iffy. Uh, they were very interested in in safety and things like that. And now, as we're looking at these things, that were you know they can be a lot of the stuff can be three D printed. You know, they're they're so much safer. You know, self-regulating, there's no possible way that that quite a few of them could have a meltdown because they self-regulate. So, you know, now we need to to step back and take a look at the way that we're doing regulation and and make smart decisions and smart choices to be able to enable those up and coming technologies to step forward and uh, and you know, come into the limelight and, and show what they're able to do. And I think it's, you know, the next five to 10 years is really going to be a pretty phenomenal time in the nuclear power industry. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to see. I mean, you know, like I said, we got a glimpse March 2020. So hopefully we'll, we'll learn from those lessons. Well, thank you for that tangent. Um, back to, you know, your early life. Again, you ended up functioning at a very high level in the military. So at the school age, were you an athlete back then? Uh, I was. I I played. I played football. I wrestled uh, for a few years in uh, you know middle school, and then uh, you know the sort of farm work took over and uh, and occupied a lot of my time. But yeah, I was uh, I was an athlete at, in some way, shape, or form, and uh, you know tried to either be in the weight room or or what have you. And you know I guess that was that was sort of what we did at the time. Yeah, we didn't have all the distractions that kids have now, so it was a a good avenue to to get rid of some energy. Now, with wrestling, that seems to be a common denominator again against you know amongst some of these you know high functioning men and women that have come on here or high performing, shall I say? The role that you ended up doing, even though you were part of a team, was was very individualized. Actually, flying. So again, did you did you enjoy? 
the element of wrestling that you couldn't rely on anyone else. So ultimately, even if you were part of a wrestling team, when you were on the mat, you were completely accountable for your actions. Yeah, and that's you know that's always a challenge because it's a team sport, but it's made up of individual competitions, and uh, you know it's it is ultimately it is quite frankly probably one of the ultimate challenges in uh, in competition. You know, my I wasn't nearly as good as some of my cousins who had uh, who had gone to states in Pennsylvania, and at the time when I was growing up, Pennsylvania was the wrestling state in the nation, and uh, but it was. You know, it, it was a it was a good challenge. I think it it sort of taught you that, um, you know, this is going to suck. You're going to suffer for a while, but ultimately, you know, you keep at it. You don't stop. You don't quit, and you know, you you keep fighting until you can come out on top. And it was, you know, it was there were times that uh, it was so just completely frustrating. You know, when you know you're doing everything that you should be doing, but still you're not uh, you're not making it out on top. But you don't quit. You just keep going back and keep fighting and keep fighting and pushing. And uh, you know that's it was a, it was a lot of fun. I, I learned a lot from that. Uh, and you know, kind of fast forward to my my later years, I actually started playing men's lacrosse when I was in my late forties. Um, and that's you know full contact, you know full on lacrosse. And it was because it was an opportunity for something. It gave me something to do with my with my youngest son as he was starting to play lacrosse in high school. So we could go out and do it together and we would go play competitions and, and stuff like that. And it was, you know, I think between wrestling and lacrosse, you probably see a vast majority of of those high performing people uh, engaged in those sports because it's, you know, it's competition, you know, person on person. It's, you know, full out you're going as hard as you can. And, uh, you know, there's, it's sort of that communal shared suffering. It gives you an opportunity to, to grow and learn about yourself and your teammates and, and be part of something that's bigger than yourself. Absolutely. Well, speaking of being part of something bigger than yourself, had you already had aspirations to join the military when you were in high school or was there something that preceded that? Yeah, actually when I was, uh, when I was in high school, uh, you know, I, I came to the conclusion uh, early on that, you know, this was one of the greatest nations in the world. And for being given the opportunity that I was, that I was given, I owed something back. And, you know, so I always had a, a sense of volunteerism, a desire to, to give back to the community, to give back to the country. Uh, you know, even in high school, I started out as a volunteer firefighter and did that all the way up through my college years uh, before I, before I moved on to the military. And, uh, you know, as a kid in high school, I, I talked to the recruiter. Uh, my parents were adamant that they wanted me to go to college, but, uh, and ironically, I was, uh, I was going to college. I was going to be a veterinarian. And, uh, as it turns out, vet schools are pretty hard to get into. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my, uh, as I was talking to folks and trying to figure out you know, was that the right thing for me? You know, did I think it was the right thing? Uh, I got back in touch with a recruiter and had initially enlisted to be a uh, communicator at a, at a artillery battalion in the reserves. And as it turned out, the uh, the officer selection officer found out that I had uh, that I had been interested and, and wanted to talk to me before I signed on the on the dotted line. 
and uh, brought me in. And, you know, this was back in the, the Tom Cruise Top Gun days. Uh, and and he said, hey, I, I've got an aviation slot that I need to fill. Are you interested in flying? And, uh, well, uh, hell yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I go into the Marine Corps with an aviation slot and, uh, you know, all I, all I have to do is, is finish college, make it through officer's candidate school, uh, make it through the basic school. And then, uh, I've got my chance to fail out of flight school. So it was, uh, you know, I think it was sort of that continuation of my desire to serve because I thought it was the right thing to do. You know, I was always up for a challenge, you know, figure the Marine Corps is the, the hardest service that I can get into and, uh, and give it a shot and see what I can do. And, you know, it, uh, it turned out to be the, a great decision for me. It was, uh, you know, more fun than I can ever imagine, uh, more rewarding than I can ever imagine and more challenging than I could ever imagine all at the same time. So I had a few aviators on here. One was Dave Burke, who was a fellow Marine pilot. Um, okay. And I think every single one of them, Top Gun was a big influence in, in their career. So I don't know if Tom Cruise realizes the impact he had on the U.S. military. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sure once that movie came out, uh, Navy recruiting numbers probably went through the roof. Best tool they ever invested in. Absolutely. So... You're, you know, you're a Pennsylvania lad. You've, you know, worked on farms. You've got wrestling experience. Kind of lead me through what made you successful? Because I'm assuming the attrition rate on the way to a position like that must be pretty high. Uh, you know, I don't. I I've often joked that uh, I'm either too stupid or too stubborn to quit. Um, and you know, it's just head down, do what you need to do, keep moving forward, one foot in front of the other. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of one of those guys that if you tell me I can't do it, well, I'm going to show you that I can do it. And you just keep moving on. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of one of those things, you know, there, I think our, we limit ourselves in our, in our thought process. And, and if you sort of take those binders off and, you know, just keep going, I can do go just a little bit more and just a little bit more and just a little bit more. And by the time you get to the end, you turn around and look back and you think, holy cow, I've, I've made it all this far. And all I did was think about what's next, what's the next thing, next obstacle I have to get over, the next, uh, you know, test I need to take. And you just keep going. You know, we found that a lot in flight school. It was, uh, it was literally drinking from the fire hose. Uh, you know, a lot of it was just rote memorization in, in the very beginning just understanding what the procedures are. So you'd, uh, you'd go study for a flight, you'd go brief for the flight, you go fly the flight and you come back and then debrief it. And then you've got to know everything that's going to go on for the next flight that happens the next day. So it's just, a, it's just a matter of how do I absorb this information as fast as I possibly can, try and make it stick and then be able to execute it under a, under a stressful situation. And, you know, you, you sort of get used to that battle rhythm and that, uh, you know, that thought process and, and, you know, how do you, how do you keep moving forward? And, you know, a lot of it is you just got to be able to keep your cool. You got to be able to think under pressure and, and just keep moving forward. What's the next thing I got to do? What's the next problem that needs to be solved? And, and it's amazing when you take that mindset, you know, just little bits and little bites, 
you know, you don't, you don't get so overwhelmed and you're, you're able to make it through. Now, what about, um, physical fitness standards at the front door and then how they're maintained? Cause I mean, to the layman, they might think, well, you're just sitting there holding a joystick. You know, anyone that understands the, the forces that you go through knows that it's extremely demanding. So, so how do they test you initially and how do they maintain that standard in, in the Marines? Well, a lot of it is just your overall general physical fitness. You know, the Marines have a, a standard or a physical fitness test. Uh, when I was, when I first started, it was uh, sit-ups, pull-ups, and a three-mile run. And that was sort of the, you know, the benchmark of, of where you fall out in that. And, uh, you know, especially as an officer, you want to make sure that you're at the front of the pack. You know, it, it's not good if you're, uh, if you're just passing the minimums. And there's a bit of a pride thing to that too. I mean, there's, uh, your ego gets in the way and, uh, you know, you want to do the best. You don't want to be, uh, you know, you don't want to, to give up to anybody else. So you, you continue to push yourself harder. And, you know, flying itself really becomes its own conditioning, you know, dealing with G forces and things like that. You, you build up a tolerance to it after over time and no kidding, you go out flying and you're, you know, you're fighting or pulling G's or anything like that. It, it is a full body workout for, you know, for, especially for the tactical portion of the flight. Um, you know, you can imagine if you're pulling, you know, six, seven G's. Yeah, figure your head weighs 10 pounds, you pull seven G's, now your head weighs 70 pounds, and you got to, you know, be able to turn around and look and, and process information under all that load and, uh, and still be able to function. So there's a, you know, a certain accepted level. You can't do it if you're not fit. You really can't. Um, you know, I think I was, I was actually fortunate because my blood pressure is always a little bit on the high side of normal, uh, which know drives my wife crazy because every time she looks at my blood pressure number she's she's worried uh you know rightfully so she's she takes good care of me but uh you know when you're when you're flying it makes a difference because you're as you're fighting an airplane your your blood has or your heart has to pump your blood from your chest up to your head uh specifically your eyes and that's uh that's typically where you see those first problems you, know, you you start to pull on G's and the first thing that happens is you'll, if you don't, you know, if the blood started to drain down from your head, you'll, you'll lose color vision. And, uh, you know, you, you continue to pull more and then your, you know, your vision that's 180 degrees starts to come down and looks like a soda straw and you can actually pull hard enough where you can no longer see and you continue to pull, you can actually pass out. So, you know, fighting all that force, uh, you've got that's part of the fight that's part of flying the airplane that's part of being able to to be technically and tactically proficient to be able to to uh endure those conditions and be effective and it's not just be effective because especially as you're you know you get further along in the in the pipeline and you're leading other airplanes out there you know you know one two four you know wherever it is you know you've you're not only taking care of your airplane and what you need to do, but you've got to be thinking about everybody else that's out there and what are they doing with their airplanes and where are they? And, you know, what's the status of what's going on in the ground, what's going on in the air. So it's, uh, you know, it's not only a huge mental exercise, it's a huge physical exercise in being able to, you know, process that information and be able to react accordingly to make sure that you can accomplish the mission. 
See, it's fascinating because I think you're the second person, again, aviator, that has mentioned that actually a slightly higher blood pressure is an advantage as a pilot. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, – I've I've never actually uh, – the the closest that I've seen to G, G-induced issues is I lost color vision one time. Um, you know, I was out – it was – we were fighting F5s out over the desert in uh, in in uh, California, and I was fighting a guy who was a, he was painted in a it was a gray and white F5 kind of a camouflage pattern, and uh, I'm if you can imagine you know, trying to picture this in your head, so I'm above him upside down and pulling down towards him, and I'm right at like seven and a half G's, and I was a little bit dehydrated. And I'm I'm watching him. I'm watching him, and then he just disappeared. I'm like, where the heck did he go? I know he's right there. I just saw him, and then I realized that I see in everything in black and white. So I just kind of strain a little bit harder, and my color vision comes back, and I can see this gray airplane against now the tan background. Like, okay, all right, game on, buddy. I I see you now. And it was, uh, you know, it was it just phenomenal to see that you know how your body reacts to that stress and those challenges. And then, uh, you know, your training kicks in and, and you realize what's going on and you're back in the fight. See, what's interesting to me when I ask some of the other uh, aviators is the the risk that you and your men and women endure is, is the same as the risk that our associate professions do, whether it's police, whether it's fire, EMS, meaning lives are at stake. Um, and we have a, a spectrum of training philosophies amongst the departments from the excellent through to the very subpar when you are yourself as a pilot you know a a million dollar investment and then you're flying something that's you know way more expensive than that what are some of the training principles to ensure that the the most basal motor skills are embedded so you can actually have your head on the swivel so you can be looking for enemies you can be cognizant of where you are versus the rest of the fleet it's uh it's actually a lot of it is learned um you know there there's a weed out process as you're going through through flight training um you know you start out flying uh a prop airplane which for you know your first time in an airplane is is a pretty hot airplane to to learn how to fly in you know 1300 horsepower it uh, it gets up and moves and it intentionally stresses people to see if they're able to process information at a rate um, that will be uh, I guess acceptable in the future so it's uh, it's not it's not particularly stressful when you look back at the at the training you've gone through and uh, you know, just understanding what's going on. So like I talked about, you know, you go back, you have to memorize those procedures and then you have to be able to execute those procedures under stress. So you'll have, um, you know, you'll, you'll be taken off out of a, out of a runway and, you know, you, you clear the ground and the instructor will just rip the power back to, to zero. You know, now what do you do? And you, you've got this set of procedures that you go through because that's, you know, that's what you do. And that builds on that basis from where you start. And then after a while, it's, you know, think about it when you're, when you learn to drive a car, when you first start driving a car, it takes all your concentration to drive a car. And now 
you know, you get places and you think, you'll look around and go, wait a minute, I don't remember really getting here. I just got here. And the sort of the same things happens with an airplane after, you know, after a while flying the airplane becomes secondary. You know, you've, you've, you've got enough hours in the airplane, you know what it does, you know, all the inputs, all the outputs, uh, you understand how to, how to get in the right piece of sky and how to think, you know, three, five, 10 miles ahead so that you can, you can get the airplane where you need it to go. And like I said, that becomes secondary. So now the, you know, the tactics and the, you know, understanding what the sensors are telling you and all of those external things that are feeding in and, and giving you information that you have to process to be able to, to use your weapon system to accomplish your mission uh, becomes the first focus. And, you know, as you, as you get more experience and, you know, get to be more senior, you know, you get more responsibility and now you're taking out a wingman or you're taking out three guys and you're, you're leading, uh, leading larger force missions or planning strikes and things like that. So it's, it's really a fascinating, uh, progression, but there's, there is a weed out process. I mean, there's people that, uh, that made it to a fleet Hornet squadron that, you know, we found out after a while that, uh, you know, that they were just smart enough to know that they were probably out of their element. So they would study the heck out of everything and get in a simulator and practice it to the nth degree. But then when something unexpected came up, they couldn't handle it. They couldn't process the information. They couldn't, you know, always first aviate, navigate, communicate. And, you know, those, those things should degrade in, in inverse order of that. And you would get folks that just, you know, something bad would happen and all of a sudden you, they, they stop talking. And that's the, the first sign that they're overwhelmed. And then, uh, you know, are they going the right direction or their air, air skills starting to, to go down and not able altitude or airspeed or things like that. And the, those folks get weeded out pretty quick. I mean, you know, quite frankly, the aviation community eats its young. If you, if you can't hack it, you don't need to be there. Uh, you're a danger to yourself. You're a danger to others. And, and they'll get rid of you quick. It doesn't take long to, to figure that out. Yeah, and I think that's one of the, the, the issues that we have. Again, I'm, I'm, there's, there's a full spectrum. So in some of the areas where maybe the, the level of training and the realism in training isn't completely understood, Whereas, you know, I, I imagine the repetitions that you have to do of the most basic, you know, procedures, and then you're building and building and building that whole philosophy of falling to your level of training where you're still falling to a very, very high level. I, I can say personally with my own eyes that there's a department I work for where, you know, you need to throw a ladder. All right. You throw it once, even if you do it badly. All right. Check the box. Yeah. You're done. You threw a ladder, you know, and so it's just trying to weed that out. And when I have people, from all these different communities coming on saying this is how we train this is the level we're held at this is the these are the standards we're held at and if we don't meet them anymore the next year then we're not in that group of men and women um that's in some areas that's a place where that's kind of fallen off and we we have a tendency to protect some of our members even if they're not at that level anymore and i'm not talking about the moment you fall below a standard then we ax you but there has to be a process to bring you back up or, you know, the ob obviously the other option is to transition to another branch within the service. Right, right. That's, uh, you know, that's always a challenge, you know, especially as, as folks get older, you want to you stay on your peak game. But, 
you know, you're, you're fighting time, you're fighting age. Uh, you know, I think when I was, when I was a young kid, you know, our, our physical fitness tests, we ran twice a year. So I would run six miles a year and, uh, you know, I'd be able to knock it out pretty easily. But by the time I got to 35, I was like, Oh, wait a minute. You know, I, I got to start putting a little bit more time and effort into this because, uh, my pants are getting a little bit snug. My, uh, now my run times are not where they need to be. And it really became uh, a much more concerted effort to be able to maintain that level of fitness and, and meet those standards that are required to, to continue on. But you're right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the, the standards are there for a reason. Uh, you know, I think you'll see those, those high performers set standards and at least try to meet them or, or exceed them. Um, you know, I think if you allow the, the standards to erode too much, you know, and obviously standards have to be reasonable. Uh, there's no sense in, in having standards that are unattainable or, you know, attainable by so few people that uh, you become ineffective. But, you know, the standards are there for a reason because the people or the person to your left or right is is relying on you. And, you know, when the, you know, when the, when the time comes, they need you to be able to, to throw that ladder up or, you know, run that distance or carry that load or, or whatever. You know, I think it's the, you know, the, and oftentimes standards get, uh, get a knock because, you know, it, it weeds people out. But, you know, in the professions that we engage in, not everybody's cut out to do that. And, you know, it, today when everybody gets a participation trophy, that's sometimes hard to stomach. Um, you know, it's thanks for playing and you tried your best, but your best might not be good enough. Yeah, yeah, I agree 100%. And I've always told people I'd be the worst accountant ever. So I, I would be the one not making the standard of the math test or whatever it was. So I think we all have our place. Um, I want to touch on one more area before we transition to kind of like your deployed time because there's, there's a couple of questions I always ask the guests but again you are functioning at this this highly cognitive level under a high amount of stress what were some of the tools breath work whatever you used to use to overcome some of that stress and fear when you were flying yeah it's funny I was used to uh caffeine and nicotine kept me going um now you know I think it's uh you know, especially you'll find in the military, compartmentalization is is absolutely critical. Um, you know, the the ability to take everything else that's outside of what you are doing right this second and block it out and just focus on what you need to do now. What's the next thing I need to do to be successful? And that's those are tools that that serve me very well uh, to deal in you know combat situations, to deal in flying to deal in, uh, you know, high stress situations, but I'll caveat that with saying that's not good for relationships and, uh, you know, those, those interpersonal relationships that you have with other folks, especially your spouse and things like that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I had, um, a baseball player on who was hit in the head on his very first pitch and actually gave him an at bat years later. Um, but, uh, he actually, I, I take that back. It was a different baseball player. I'm actually quoting. It was another one who is now a fitness coach, but he talked about the flow state. And what was interesting of his observation was 
and I've had a couple of these flow state moments myself, you you have a high level of training, you have that high stress, which you know you and I have and everything that we do, and then you have that that presence, that mindfulness, that being in the moment, and that if you're lucky gives you that that brief flow state. And I I tell people I think that's the difference between you know, what we think of as, you know, the, the heroic rescuer, the one running towards, you know, the, the bullets or into a burning building. That's when we need to be in that compartmentalized state. But after that, that's when you have to open that compartment up and process what you just saw or just did. And I think understanding those two elements are very important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, I know in, in combat vets, and I'm sure that you've seen it in the fire service and, and, and in the police service, you know, you, you have that traumatic experience or that, you know, that near death experience or, you know, something that, you know, most people would never, ever imagine seeing. And you have to compartmentalize that. And you, you know, by default, you put that in a box and you chain that box up and nail it shut. And, uh, you know, you stuff it away someplace so that you you don't want to open that box again. You don't want to let it out. You don't want to let the contents out because then you have to feel and deal with the emotions that come with everything that's in that box. And, you know, I think that's that's where a lot of us get in trouble because you can't keep that box locked away forever. It's going to, it'll crack. Something's going to come out. And then there's then there's problems. And I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's the challenges a lot of us face, you know, in uh, in dealing with those high stress and high risk positions is, you know, you've got to be functional. Uh, you know, you're, you've got to be good at your job. You've got to take care of, take care of business while you're at work. But then at the same time, you've got to be, uh, you know, a husband, a father, uh, you know, whatever else. And you have to be, you know, accessible to your spouse. You've got to be you know, it's, it's a very, it's a tough line and a, a fine line that people have to walk. And, you know, if you, if you continue to stuff that stuff away and not really deal with it, it comes up at very bad times and, and causes a lot of problems. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of trauma in general, one thing I always like to ask any guest who was in the military that was deployed. And this question is so we can paint a picture of what the men and women out there are doing, what we're asking them to do. Because as I kind of preface each time with this question, we get a very polarizing view, I think, through the media of war, either very, very pro-war, very, very anti-war. And what I hear from the men and women that are either on the ground, in the air, you know, in the ocean, is regardless of politics that sent them over there, when they get there, Usually there's an event, they saw something, you know, within that population, because a lot of people don't understand that it's the countries that you guys are in that are being terrorized by the extremists in that country. So I know you had a slightly different, you know, perspective, because a lot of times you were in the, in the aircraft, but did you have any moments when you were deployed where you kind of had that, all right, now I see there are some some horrible people that regardless of, of what originally sent us here we are here to protect the people of Iraq, Afghanistan, whatever it was. Sure. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, the Marines actually take, uh, take pilots and make them forward air controllers. So, uh, I spent a couple of tours as, as a forward air controller, uh, one of which in combat and, uh, my, my tour, first tour of Iraq, um, 
I was working in the in the safety department for one of the the higher headquarters. You know, I was, unfortunately, you get to be senior to the point where they pull you out of squadrons and and make you do staff work and things like that. And uh, you know, I I stuck my hand in the air. I said, I will take the first forward air controller tour anywhere anybody needs. Uh, and oh, by the way, don't tell my wife this that I volunteered because <laughs> she thinks I got recruited. But uh, um. You know, as it turned out, I was I ended up with Task Force Tarawa, and for for those who who think back to that that early time in the in the Iraq War, uh, you know, everybody was moving north uh, out of Kuwait into Iraq, and uh, that was about the time Jessica Lynch's convoy got uh, got attacked, and uh, I was the sixth vehicle back in the convoy as we were streaming north towards Nazaria in, in Iraq. That's, uh, you know, there was, there was a couple bridges there that we were, we were going to be tasked to take and then make sure that, uh, follow on forces could, uh, use those bridges and move forth forward to Afghanistan or up to, uh, Baghdad. And as we're running into the city, uh, you know, we're looking around and, it didn't strike me till till later, you know. There we had been going through the desert, and there was you know just random goat herders out and you know doing their thing. And as we got closer and closer to the city, it just got quiet. There was nobody out. There was no vehicle traffic. There was no nothing. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, we're running into this city, and uh, we start taking heavy machine gun fire, and the the lead elements on the radio say, hey. You know, we've got U.S. vehicles here, and it was that Jessica Lynch or the remainder of Jessica Lynch's convoy was running out of the city, uh, back towards us, and we, you know, we grabbed as many of them as we could. Obviously, not all of them, and uh, you know, from there it was fights on. You know, we were we just dove off to the side of the road. I've got a, you know, I'm trying to call in air support. Uh, you know, we. As far as anybody else was concerned, we were we were headed into a relatively benign environment, so we didn't really have a lot of uh, a lot of support with us. And uh, you know, here I am with this brand new unit. I think I've been with them maybe a week, and uh, you know, we're dive off the side of the road, throw the antennas up, and I'm trying to get all the air support I can. And uh, and we're in the fight. And it was. Uh, you know, as, as I'm looking around and, and watching what's going on and, you know, trying to work work the air problem to make sure that we get the support we need, and then the reports of casualties start coming back. You know, we've had, uh, we're starting to take casualties. We're, we're pushing forward to, to secure the city and the bridges. And it's, um, you know, I'm listening to radio traffic and I'm, you know, calling in air support and I'm directing, uh, directing strikes and it was uh sorry it's uh you know just trying to you're just doing your job just keep keep pushing forward and um you know you you know you've got folks that are pinned down they're getting low on ammunition and we're trying to get them resupply efforts and there's you know there's obviously there's friction everywhere there's the you know the the enemy is there trying to trying to, you know, exert their will, we're, we're fighting back. And, you know, obviously, uh, most people realize that 
getting on the business end of the U.S. military is probably not a great idea. But, you know, this is an opportunity for for the insurgents to to try and give us a black eye. And they're fighting for, for all they're worth. And we had, uh, you know, folks that were were standing up in front of armored vehicles and tanks and everything else shooting back at us. So it was, I mean, there was a lot going on. It was, uh, you know, again, you go back to that compartmentalization. What is, what is the next thing I need to do to make sure that this thing doesn't get out of control? And, uh, you know, we, I think we had 56 casualties that first day, you know, and trying to move them out and you, you know, you watch them, watch them coming back and, uh, you know, talking to them, you know, some of them are, are ambulatory and some of them are getting off helicopters and, and, uh, you know, they saw, they sort of all have that thousand yard stare and, you know, sort of that, uh, uh, look of disbelief. You know, I think as, you know, especially as, as young kids, you're bulletproof and, you know, there's, you know, it won't happen to me. It'll happen to somebody else. And then, uh, you know, all of a sudden they, you know, it is them. And, you know, all you can do is, you know, try and make them as comfortable as possible, get them ready to, you know, get back to get some medical attention. But, you know, that makes it very real. You know, that, uh, you know, that time you're, you're sitting there uh, and you're doing all you can. And, you know, you ask yourself, is it enough? Can I do more? You know, how do you, how do you continue to, to push forward and be effective? And it's, I mean, it's a challenge. All you can do is the best you can do. And, you know, a lot of it, when you, when all that happens, we always tease, it's like going back on, on brainstem power. You know, you go back to what you're trained to do and, you know, you execute those missions that you've done over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, you rely on your training. That's, you know, that's what you, what gets you through. And it gives you the ability to, to go back and think and regroup and then, uh, you know, reassess. And, you know, there was a, there a couple of times that, that we really did some, some pretty amazing stuff. Um, you know, we had at one point gotten, uh, the Iraqis had, uh, had mounted a, uh, a night attack against us. And it was, you know, it was probably the first opportunity where I had seen an, not an overwhelming amount of firepower, but right, let's call it a shitload um, come in our direction. And, you know, we had folks that were guys who were out patrolling and in, uh, in armored vehicles. And, you know, we were telling them, hey, you got to button up. We're going to be dropping mortars all around the position because they're getting close to us. And it was, you know, it was really tense moments. And, you know, one of the benefits of, of, having a pilot on the ground as a forward air controller is that oftentimes, you know, the guys that are in the air providing air support to you. And, uh, you know, we had a bunch of Iraqis that were, you know, we're on the South side of the road. There were a bunch of Iraqis that were massing up on the North side of the road. And, uh, you know, I knew the guy that was in the airplane providing air support to us. I told him, all right, brother I said, I'm on the South side of the road. I need you to lay it in close you know, don't effing kill me. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, but I had that just absolute confidence in that guy's skills, his training and everything else to, to get the mission done. And he put the ordinance right where we needed it. Uh, you know, I, it felt like somebody hit me in the chest with a sledgehammer when that thing went off cause it was that close. And it was, uh, you know, I guess it was, reassuring or 
comforting to know that, you know, everything that we had learned, everything we've been taught, everything that we had practiced really did work. And it was, I mean, you know, once, once a couple of those things happened, you know, you really, you really see where, you know, that, uh, that combat capability goes. And I think I've sort of gone down a couple of rabbit holes. So I'll back up and, uh, I love rabbit holes. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, well, firstly, thank you. Cause I think it's, it's important that all of us that have asked our boys and girls, I mean, let's be honest, most of them are barely out of, you know, childhood to go and do what they do. It's important that we hear the stories. It's important that we take care of them physically and mentally when they come home. But the only way we can hear that is people storytelling and, you know, having the courage to tell the story. So thank you for that. And it also illustrates the importance of that training, like we were talking about before, because had that pilot not owned his skill, you might not be sitting here having this conversation with me. So I think that's a very powerful story from the ownership of training and uh, perspective as well. No, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we'd be nowhere without our training and it's, you know, it's, and I'm glad to share the stories. I mean, they're, you know, I've, I've sort of dealt with my demons and unpacked those things and, um, you know, and, and, you know, you don't always necessarily move on. They sort of, they sort of always lurk, but, you know, you, you come to some level of, uh, of understanding and peace with it. And, you know, you, you do, you do what you do to make sure that, uh, the individual on your left and right makes it home just like you do. And, you know, that's, you know, you go back to, to movie quotes, you know, we're, we're instruments of policy. You know, the, the government's decided that this is what they're going to do. Okay, fine. That's, you know, that's what we'll do. We'll do it to the best of our ability and we're going to do it uh, in a way that we make sure that we take care of our, our brothers and sisters and then try and get back home. Yeah, well, I think that's the thing that I've seen, again, as a common denominator, whether, you know, whatever profession you're in, if it's a life-saving profession, is we're going to lose people. You might lose people that are fighting with you. It might be collateral damage, whatever it is. Um, you know, with us, especially in the EMS side, you know, we lose a lot because you can't save mm-hmm. them. You know, had a brain bleed. They got hit by a car or whatever it was. And it's heart-wrenching. And I think the the difference between coping and not coping is, once again, if you know in your heart of heart that you've trained to the highest ability and that thing still happened, I think it's a lot easier to put that to bed than I know in my heart of hearts I didn't train. What if, what if, what if? Right. Yeah. It's What if kills you? I mean, it's... All you can do is the best you can do, and you know sometimes the the chips don't roll the right way. So you know that's uh, that's never an easy answer. You know it just it is what it is, and and that's that's very hard to deal with, especially with when you get Type A personalities that are trying to to control everything and make sure that you're doing the best that you can and and make sure you're successful, but. You know, sometimes the good Lord has another plan. Now, with um, with the the uh, what am I trying to say here? The the distance from which you're fighting. I'm trying. I'm thinking of the wrong the wrong word. But anyway, um, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman talks about the the proximity. That's the word. So, the closer the proximity in his philosophy, the more traumatic it is. So, if you have to kill a man with a rock, it's you know more traumatic than a mortar attack, for example, what did you personally notice? You're all the way up there, you're firing, you know, the, the weapons from the plane. Um, with, with 
basically having to take a life from that distance? Did you still feel a pretty significant impact or was there a detachment because you weren't seeing faces and people? I mean, obviously in the FAC capacity you were, but in, in the cockpit itself. Well, I actually never got to do uh, a combat tour in the airplane. So all of my combat time is on the ground. Um, you know, so you, you get to see things up close and personal and you know, that that's my experience. You know, I think there's, um, you know, it, it's probably more sterilized and surgical uh, when you're when you're farther away from it. Uh, it. It's more mechanical. You know, I think, you know, we we typically as as Americans and you know just people in general understand that your actions are taking lives, and that has an impact. Um, it gets to be probably a little bit different when you actually see up close the impact of your actions. Um, yeah, I mean, I, that's probably the best way to describe it. I mean, it, it becomes much more real when you, when you actually see it. Yeah. Now you mentioned Jessica Lynch. Um, I heard Mike Ritland, who's a SEAL canine trainer, interview Jessica and Mike was actually one of the SEALs that was on that rescue. Were you guys involved in the rescue as well? Yeah, actually, that was uh, it. Was really a, a pretty cool mission. Uh, I got tasked with putting together a diversion package uh, to get the city focused on another part of the the city. While the seals went in and 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 rescued everybody there, uh, there was the Bath Party headquarters in uh, in Nazaria, and uh, again, I had another another section of of airplanes came in, and we dropped a ton of bombs on that building to focus the entire city on on that well uh, well the seals and special forces guys ran in and, and did the snatch and grab on Jessica and her and her folks so it was it was really cool to be you know part of something that uh, that resulted and turned out so well and you know we're so excited to see them back and and you know back where they need to be you see, what's interesting is listening to Mike interview Jessica. I, if if I haven't got my stories mixed up, I, I'm almost certain when they made entry to, I think it was the hospital she was in, they were surprised how little resistance there was. Well, now I know why there was no resistance because they were all fighting you on the other side of the city. That was the plan. <laughs> all right. Well, then one last thing about deployment, then we'll move on. But I, this is the other side of the coin that I always like to see if there are any stories is this is a country, you know, whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan, these are countries full of men and women and children that are just trying to live their lives while this, you know, horrendous terror is going around them. Um, were there any kind of human kindness, compassion stories that, that happened aside from the war, just from the regular people when you were there? Yeah, it was, I mean, you see humanity everywhere you go. Um, you know, sometimes it's, it's just little things, you know, you, you see a, a parent with their child and, um, you know, they just, when the, when the kid's scared and they, they wrap an arm around them or, um, you know, you watch some kids playing with a ball or, or something like that. I mean, kids are kids everywhere you go. Um, you know, you see, you see people that just want to live their life and they don't want to be harassed. They don't want to be terrorized. They don't want to be, you know, just, just leave me out of this nonsense that they get caught up in. And it's, it's really unfortunate because there's some, you know, some really great people in that country. And in fact, when I, 
when I came back, uh, I I got off the airplane and I I was with my my wife and we were we were headed home and we stopped real quick to go uh, to get gas and there was a an Iraqi guy that that came out of the gas station and you know he just he came back he says you know in very broken English did you just come back from Iraq yes sir I sure did and he threw his arms around me and kissed me on both cheeks and and just said thank you and you know that that to me says that you know they believe we were doing the right thing um and it is that humanity that that you know we're we're here to to help people out we're here to to make sure that they they have the best chance to succeed and you know that's that comes in a lot of different ways and uh, it means a lot of different things to different people but just to see the the hope in those people's eyes and the you know the you know the joy in kids eyes that they're they're able to be kids and not be you know pulled into you know to be a terrorist or to be a, a freedom fighter or something like that you know i think there's those little things like that, that, that realize that, you know, that make you realize that, okay, we're, we're here, we're doing the right thing. Beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing that too. Um, so when did you make the decision to transition out of being a pilot specifically? Uh, well, it was, uh, I, I was actually coming to, it was kind of funny, you know, you would think, uh, the government spends a whole lot of money to, to make you a pilot. They wouldn't want to, they would want to capitalize on that, but you know, unfortunately, like I said before, you get uh, get to the point where you're too senior uh, to be in a squadron and flying all the time. So, my uh, after I came back from Iraq, it was it was my time to rotate out and and go do something else because I had been in you know back to back to back uh, fleet tours for for oh, probably a, a dozen years, and so my by monitor who's the guy that uh here's what we call the guy that gives us our assignments uh he called me up he says uh yeah it's it's time for you to go to dc uh you know you've you've been in the fleet too long you need to you need to come out here and and do your time and i thought oh god you know I'm, my administrative skills are terrible you know i i had my excuse gun on rapid fire you know, I didn't, uh, trying to get my, get out of that. I wanted to, to stay in the fleet and, you know, fight and do my thing. And, uh, so I apologize for anybody who driving from San Diego to DC, uh, if the road that, uh, leads East is rough, that's because I had my fingernails just dug in <laughs> you know, like a spoiled child, not wanting to go, not wanting to go East. And, uh, so it was it was my time uh, to go do something else, and I had a, had a safety background, and uh, so I was going to head out to D.C. to to work in the safety office in the Marine Corps. And uh, my monitor called me, and when I was in New Mexico on my trip, and you know when when his monitor when his phone number shows up on your cell phone, it it's probably never a good thing. Uh, and he says, "Well, uh, he says I've got some good news and I've got some bad news." I said, "Okay." He says, well, the good news is you're still going to D.C. The bad news is uh, you're not going to the safety division. You're going to set up an office for a three-star in the Pentagon. I don't know anything else about it. Figure it out when you get here. Wow. <laughs> there, there's, some, uh, there's some orders for you. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was interesting, but it was, uh, it was truly a great experience because it gave me an opportunity to see you know, a different part of the Marine Corps, to work with different uh, other services, things like that. And uh, – it sort of 
rounded me out for uh, and prepared me better for you know life on the outside. So I uh, ended up with uh, you know I worked in manpower for a while, uh, and then I worked in in the money division of the Marine Corps. Uh, running the aviation program. So I, I oversaw the budget for all the aviation programs in the Marine Corps. So about a, a seven, about $700 million budget. Um, and it was, it was an eye opening experience for me. So understand how Congress works and how, you know, the services and their dynamic and, and things like that. And it, uh, it quite well set me up for, for what I wanted to, you know, for, for moving on. So about this time, as I'm as I'm getting ready to get out, I'm getting towards 20 years. I realize I'm I'm not going back to flying again. It's time to to move on and do something else. Um, my oldest son is a is a machine gunner in the Marine Corps, and he's had two brutal deployments. Uh, first deployment, you know, we were we were going to to funerals and and uh, you know all those sort of things, and and all the loss and and everything that he was dealing with. And, you know, as I, as I transitioned out of the Marine Corps, you know, I, I still had that desire to serve. Um, you know, like I, like I mentioned, it's, uh, of all the places to be unemployed, DC is probably a good one. Uh, there's, there's jobs here if you want to work. And, uh, you know, as I was, as I was coming to the end of my time, I thought, you know, I need to find a way so that I can, you know, be engaged and, and and help out those guys who are, who are still dealing in that, in those combat situations, because, you know, I, I still felt I had, I could contribute in some way, even if it wasn't in uniform and that, uh, you know, that, that became a bit of a, a bit of a challenge. It was kind of funny as I was, uh, I, I had got a job, I had interviewed and locked on a job and I was all ready to go and I was on, on terminal leave. So, you know, getting ready to collect my last paycheck in the Marine Corps and start my my first civilian job, and the phone rings, and the the guy tells me, he says, "Hey, uh, I got uh, again, I got a good news and bad news story for you. Good news is uh, we met the conditions to hire you. The bad news is I lost another contract. I've got five guys out of work. Sorry, I can't help you." So now I'm like, "Oh shit." Uh, okay, so the job that I had lined up falls through. Um, and for the first time in my life, since I was 13 years old, I'm unemployed. And what do I do? Um, so it became, you know, that transition for me was about a six week period. And it was, I was scrambling, you know, I, I got to find a job to provide for my family and, and take care of everything else. And, you know, luckily the, you know, sort of the network of the Marine Corps came back and, and a, a guy that had been a, a helicopter pilot hired me into uh, a contractor position back in the Marine Corps uh, doing readiness reports. So, you know, basically every unit has, you know, how ready they are to go to combat. Okay. So, you know, it's a bunch of numbers on a spreadsheet and you can imagine my, you know, one day my, you know, I'm hurling myself at the ground, releasing high explosive ordnance Next day, next day, my biggest threats are paper cuts and ice drain. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm in this job and I'm thankful to have a job, quite frankly, but I know it's not something that I'm going to, to be able to do long term. You know, it's, uh, it's one of those, oh God, I can't believe I have to get up and go to work. And then, you know, I worked for great, 
worked with great people, but it was a different view of, of the Marine Corps because I had, uh, you know, I had taken off the uniform and put on a suit and came back into an office full of Marines and it was different. It, it was really different. Um, you know, two guys who would have been my peers, uh, had I been in uniform, they were getting ready to go, go have coffee. I said, Hey, if you guys don't mind, I'm, you know, I'd like to go with you. They said, no, 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 wait, that's, we need to talk about Marine stuff. And, you know, for, for me, that was like a dagger to the heart. You know, it's, you know, a couple weeks earlier, I'd have been, I've been hanging out with you guys and now I'm not part of the crowd. So, you know, that, that transition for me was, was difficult because I lost a sense of identity. I lost who I had been for 20 years. I mean, that was all I thought about. That was all I did. And, you know, that was what I had dedicated my life to. And now, now you're on the outside and, and, you know, how do you deal with that? So it was, it was, you know, I would say there was a, there was a little bit of a rocky transition. I mean, obviously it, uh, it worked out in the end, but it was, it was challenging and, and touch and go there for a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think that's an absolute common denominator as well. So the fire service, for example, you'll have, I, I mean, my career was relatively short and I went out on my own terms a little bit early because I was at a crossroads and it was, uh, you know, a great choice and I, I never had any issue with it. However, you get a lot of these men and women that do their 25, 30, and then one day they walk out the fire station and the bay door closes behind them. And it's the same thing, that crew that they used to ride with every third day for however long. Now they're on the outside. And I got a little glimpse of that. I volunteered at a local department here after I retired. And you said about identity, because I didn't want to let go of, of the hero in the, the bunker gear, you know, that my ego didn't. Sure. And when I was in there, I felt like a, a medic school ride along. I, I was on the outside and, and to the point where I was like, right, this isn't this isn't working. But I see this I see a lot of people struggling with this when they transition out of the career. But it was also interesting. Did you also struggle a little bit when you went from boots on the ground, you know, real marine, forward air, um, aircraft control to riding a desk and admin because I think that the promotion to some sort of admin also has its kind of transitional trauma attached to it as well. Yeah, it, I mean it really did. It was uh you know the challenge it was the first time that I had really had to deal with civilians in a in an official capacity. You know, everybody I had dealt with with in uniform before, you know, it and there's you know in the Marine Corps especially, I mean in leaders if you're not a leader or if you don't have some sort of leadership skill, you will be gone. Uh, because everybody at some level is, is a leader. And the challenges that I faced with, you know, the first time I had, first time I had ever heard somebody say, that's not my job or, you know, I'm not going to do that. And like, wait, what, what did you just say? Like, we have a mission to get done. How is that not your job? And it was, it was an eye opener. I mean, it was, it was a different side of the organization that I had never encountered before. Uh, you know, I think fortunately it doesn't happen very often in the Marine Corps, but, um, you know, it was, it was a challenge. We had, we had folks that were in leadership positions because they had been there so long, not necessarily that they had any leadership skill, 
but because they had longevity and, you know, they had technical expertise, but, you know, now Mr. Technical Expert, I need you to lead 15 people. And it was a shit show. And it's, uh, you know, it's a challenge because, you know, you realize that, uh, you know, that there, there are leadership challenges and there are opportunities and things like that. And you want to step up and, and, you know, you want to fill those gaps and, and plug the holes and, and make sure that the mission gets done. But there are just, you know, things that, you know, there's times you can't fight city hall. You know, you, you can only do what you can do. You can, uh, you know, try and influence or, or, you know, try and convince people of the right thing to do or, you know, right course of action. And then, you know, aside from being uh, smart and technically proficient to be able to, to back up your, uh, your arguments, it's a big difference because you go from being a, you know, deliver an ordinance to, like I said, you know, your biggest threats are paper cuts and eye strain and you're a, you're a keyboard warrior. Not saying that those jobs aren't vitally important because they enable everybody to do what they need to do at the, at the pointy end of the spear and they're long hour, thankless jobs, uh, that ultimately need to get done. And, you know, I think, uh, once I got my ego around or past the fact that I was not going to get promoted again, I was not going to go back to flying, that it was, it was time to, to settle in and really learn all that I could and, and be an effective member of the team and then, you know, prepare myself for my next phase of life. Well, I think one of the things that I see a lot of people struggle with is, I mean, they lost their tribe and they feel like they lost their why. And what's interesting is, I've had a lot of people on here. Ryan Parrott, who's a Navy SEAL that started Sons of the Flag. Um, you know, there's, uh, he's not military, but there's a gentleman who works in, um, Orlando with the Give team, working with his very, uh, um, one of the poorer yeah. neighborhoods, bringing their kids up. You, you know mm-hmm. of them. Um, and so understanding that you join the Marines to make a difference, to do something good in the world and realizing that that doesn't have to just be wearing that uniform that you wore that i wore before the mission's the same you just got to find what that looks like post you know whatever profession you were in operation enduring warrior is definitely an organization that carries on that why so tell me how you found them uh it's you know it, it was actually very fortuitous that i found them um you know i had i had gone to an event um you know like i like i mentioned i've you know, I've always had a, a desire to serve or a, a passion to serve and thought that I can, you know, I, I have a desire to give back to, you know, other people or organizations or things like that. And, you know, my wife probably got a heart twice the size of most people that I can imagine. And, uh, you know, as we were dealing with our, the aftermath of my son's deployments and the, you know, the folks coming back and we, you know, we'd gotten involved in, in other charities and things like that. And I, I was, I was searching for that next thing. Um, you know, like I mentioned, I had lost my identity. I had, uh, I was sort of adrift. Um, you know, and, and as it turns out, uh, me without a purpose is not good. Um, you know, I sort of, I sort of sunk into self-destructive behaviors. Uh, I mean, I was a terrible husband. I was, uh, you know, just not a good person. You know, I think it was, it, it was that, you know, I think 
without something to focus on that was that was good and beneficial or uh, you know that benefited somebody you know it was it just got to a point where you know I I didn't like myself I wasn't in a good place and it was it was really difficult and we my wife and I had, had gone to another uh, charity event and I saw uh, Operation Enduring Warrior uh, take Earl Granville through I think what was his first event and you know, it really, it really struck me, you know, how they carried themselves, how they, uh, you know, how they took care of their honoree, how they made a difference and made sure that, uh, he was accomplishing the goal. They weren't doing it for him. And, you know, they went through that suffering with them, uh, with that honoree. And, you know, it sort of checked a mark in the back of my head that, uh, that was something that, that really resonated with me. And fast forward, uh, you know, another year or two and, you know, I see him at another event and got talking to a lot of the the guys there and I, you know, I had watched them and I watched their professionalism and their demeanor and how they, you know, how they put the honoree first and they, you know, they included folks and, um, you know, it, that solidified in my mind that that was an organization that I wanted to be a part of. You know, their, their mission was good. I believed in their mission. I believed in the way they, the way they did things uh, you know, their professionalism, all those sort of things. But ultimately it came down to, you know, what is that, what is that tribe? What is that family? You know, I watched them interact and it was, it was what I was missing after I got out of the Marine Corps. And, um, you know, quite frankly, I, I say once I, you know, I started in the organization as a volunteer in, in 2016 and then, uh, then move forward, uh, into the organization in 2017 and it, it filled a gap in my life that I needed. I mean, it was that, uh, it gave me purpose again. It gave me, you know, it gave me team. It gave me, you know, that, uh, that extended family that I had been so used to for so long and then had been missing. And I think, uh, you know, what, once that started, it gave me, it gave me focus for my energy and my, you know, I became probably a better husband and a better father and, and, you know, all those sort of things that, uh, that I had been before when I had a cause, you know, I, I have that cause back again. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing. I actually came across them. I interviewed Drew Stokes and I met Drew through Mandy, who ultimately ended up, you know, becoming much more involved in OEW and did an interview with Drew. I believe someone OEW heard Drew's interview, invited him to, to be an honoree through their, um, their law enforcement program that they had. And then I went to actually, so I interviewed Drew and then I ran the race with them as part of the support team. And then we all sat down okay. in the tent at the Spartan race and did another interview with a few of the masked athletes and Drew and Amanda, his wife. So I got to see this whole metamorphosis from Drew Pryor and how, you know, he was still recovering and the absolute elation when that organization showed this wounded warrior, this policeman that was almost murdered on, you know, on, on a public's parking lot, that he was able to do so much more than, than he realized he could. So I got to see it firsthand and I was completely sold. So I don't know how many races I've run with them since. I think it's about four or five, but 
seeing what they do, seeing that everyone is volunteering, so all the all the the donations are going purely to actually enabling these people to do what they do is mind blowing. I've had her all on the show. Um, you know, just just so many of the masked athletes. I won't name them just to make sure I don't you know um, unmask people. But I mean, such a phenomenal organization. So what I'd love to do is, if you wouldn't mind, because I didn't know him that well, if you want to talk me about, talk to me about um, Command Sergeant Major Eric Schmitz. Sure. Uh, when I first joined the organization, uh, Eric Schmitz was the president of, of OEW. Um, when I went through the INDOC process in, in 2017, and, you know, when, uh, when everything finished, the, you know, the real first exposure you get to, to Eric aside from him sort of watching you as you're, as you're going through the process is, uh, you know, a, a handshake and a coin and welcome to the team. And, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, you're, you're at the end of a, as a, a huge event, uh, you know, very physical, physically taxing event. And, you know, sort of that, uh, that emotional, emotional release at the end of that, you know, when you're, you're being welcomed in by the, by the leader of the organization, um, you know, just, just a phenomenal feeling. And, you know, Eric was that kind of guy. He was, you know, he touched so many people on a, on a very deep level. He cared about people. Um, you know, he would, he would go out of his way to make sure that, uh, that people were taken care of, that people were honored, that, uh, you know, the folks weren't left out or, or left behind. I mean, he would, he would call people all the time, just checking in on them, making sure they were all right. And, you know, that was the, that was the, how he, how he saw the organization. You know, it was, uh, it was an extension of, of him, I think, to, uh, to help reach out to the folks that had paid or that had given a sacrifice and, um, uh, and needed a hand up. I mean, it's not a hand out, but a hand up. And, you know, how do you, how do you make that, uh, make that transition and, and help people out? You know, I think you like you, you talked about Drew, you watch them, you know, watch folks com- complete events and, and do things they never thought they'd do again. And, and Eric was really, you know, leading the team in, in that direction, making sure that we were focused on the honorees, making sure that we were, you know, including our volunteers in the discussion and uh, in an events and making you know making them feel like they were they were part of the family. So yeah, Eric was a, a phenomenal leader, uh, a great guy. Um, you know, I had the opportunity to work with him very closely uh, for a number of years, and you know, I consider myself very fortunate for that. Well, you're using you know past tense because sadly Eric took his own life you know somewhat recently, and I think he he's a perfect example of why we need to do better. Because here's a man that did have a tribe, that did have a purpose, that was doing good things, but still fell through the net, you know, and, and it was a shock to the entire community. But it really illustrates to me that we need to do more than just fucking push-ups when we're talking about this thing. And, you know, the as I've slowly got to unwrap this topic through all these great people I've had on the show, whether it's their personal story, whether it's someone in the in the mental health field. I start to see, well, there's this, there's childhood trauma, like the Save a Warrior is a great organization that really explores that. There's organizational stress. Obviously, there's interpersonal, you know, relationships and, and strains there. There's a trauma that we see. There's sleep deprivation. So to have 
a man who seemingly had so many things in the right place um and still you know we we lost him it just shows us that we really have to i mean forget stigma we have to just be much more intelligent and looking at the whole human being from birth all the way through to where we are so that we can stop this happening because if ever there was a person that shouldn't have done that i mean from from all the stories and i did meet eric but it was you know very briefly at a race from all the stories i've heard about him he was as as the phrase goes all the time he was the last person people would have thought would have done that yeah yeah absolutely um you know and and when that happened it was um it was a bit of i mean obviously you can imagine a huge blow to the organization and uh you know, a huge challenge. Here we are, we're, we're going through COVID. Uh, you know, we're, we don't have any of the, the events that we normally have that, that hold the, the command of the community and the family together. You know, we've got people that are losing jobs, you know, a lot of uncertainty. And now, you know, we've lost the leader of an organization that people very much looked up to. Um, you know, ironically, just a few months before, Eric had tapped me on the shoulder and said, I need, I need a number two. You know, would you, I want you to come up and be the, you know, the executive vice president in the organization so we could share the, share the load and, and, uh, you know, be more effective. And when I, when I got the call that, that Eric had passed away, um, you know, I was, I was just one, just blown away, you know, absolutely, you know, Oh shit, Eric's gone. Oh shit. I've got 1200 people that I am now responsible for. And uh you know, that was that was quite a you know, quite a moment for me uh to to try and realize that you know, sort of the magnitude of of where I was at that moment. Um you know, we wanted to make sure that we, we honored Eric. We wanted to make sure that his family was taken care of, that, uh, you know, that they didn't have anything to worry about with, you know, just all the, the minutia that happens, you know, with something like that. We wanted them just to be able to focus on family time and, and spend the time together. And we were able to, to sort of, uh, you know, build those relationships and, and, and offer some, some help and hope and, you know, reach out to the family so that they could talk to us and, you know, we could share stories and things like that. And, you know, fast forward a little bit and it, into July, we decided to, to make the decision to do an event, uh, with one of our partners at Warrex in, uh, in Ohio and get as many people together as we could. And we did it as safely as we could, but it was, it was important for the healing of the family. Um, and one of the things that I, that I told everybody there uh, when we were all sitting around, uh, you know, we so many people will say, well, you know, if you're struggling, just reach out and call me. You know, if you're if you're having problems, I'm always here. But what that does is that requires somebody who's already struggling to take another action to. Uh, to save themselves when they may, they may not have that capability. So, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, uh, John Lopez, um, and, and I actually, actually took a John Lopez line and, uh, 
and ran with it. So, yes, I'm taking advice from Lopez. That's uh, that's a dangerous thing. I was going to say, you better knows. be careful. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so the story I told was uh, when I was at one point in my life, I was a rescue diver. So, you know the the training you go through and 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 everything you do, there is nothing more terrifying than swimming towards a drowning person. But that. You know, that person can't do anything to help themselves. Otherwise, they wouldn't be drowning. So you've got to swim towards them and put yourself at risk and reach out to them to save them. And that's what I, that's what I, the message that I gave to the organization. I said, you know, you, we need to, to reach out to everybody in the family. You need to know the family members. You need to, you know, if something strikes you as off or something strikes you as wrong, bring it up. Ask the question. You got to swim towards people and ask them if there's a problem. Because you, you know, you may offend somebody or you may be embarrassed. So what? You know, if you if you prevent one person from taking their life, who cares? You know? Be embarrassed. Ask a silly question. Do something that uh, you know that's out of the ordinary. But if if somebody's doing something or saying something or acting in a way that that makes you you know, wonder or just even tilt your head a little bit, you know, wonder what that was about. Ask the question. Swim towards them. And you know that that may just be what it takes to save a life. I mean, that's it's a lot more than doing push-ups. It's a lot more than than posting something on social media. Hey, call me. It's it's taking a risk. It's taking a personal risk and putting yourself out there for another person. And that's that's what family needs to do. And I think that's what this organization has really done and stepped up and and looking forward to, you know, looking to taking care of our honorees and even our members. You know, those folks that are struggling and and having financial difficulties or are sick or you know, at home with kids and and you know, can't work or things like that. You know, those are the those are the things we need to reach out and, and be there as a family and a community. And, you know, that was, that was where I was trying to go with trying to, to get the family back and, and start the healing process and, and start moving forward. So last year for us was the year of community. And, you know, we made a concerted effort to reach out, uh, talk to all of our honorees, talk to our, our volunteers and, and really make a difference in, and where we were going. And I think that had a significant impact on the organization as we move forward. You know, we're, we're now into the year of rebuilding and I think we're, we're becoming a stronger organization. We've made a lot of changes and we're, we're really coming out of this, I think in, in a better place on the backside. Yeah. Well, I think what you said is, is so important. I think for a few reasons, firstly, one thing a lot of us don't talk about is you said us, the family, I mean, literally the person's family. We, for us, if, if we think that we're going through something, the best person to ask is your wife, your husband, your your kids, you know, that see you from the outside and be like, well, yeah, you have been on edge or you seem like, you know, that you're not your normal upbeat self or you slept for 12 hours straight, you know, that that's a great witness to, to factor in. And another thing that I've noticed, and I've been so humbled by the the courage of people that have come on the show and told stories. I mean, yourself, you were moved when you were taken back to Iraq for a moment. Is when you 
tell a story about how you were hurting, how you were struggling. That's how you break stigma. You don't put on your superhero cape and you stand on a pedestal and be like, hey, if you are struggling, call me. I'm Super James. No. You tell people, hey, this is the time I was going through, you know, working 56-hour weeks, going to medic school, going through a divorce, single dad, crying in the shower, putting on music just so I could get tears out so I could get on with my day. And then you open the door for people to actually have conversations. So I think, like you said, when you're swimming towards that person, you're giving them an opportunity to talk by starting with a story about how you went through some shit. I think that's such an important thing because once you're vulnerable to whoever you think is going through it, now you've given the opportunity to really open up. Whereas if you are kind of acting like you're the strong one, you can lean on me. I think that's what pushes people away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, that's a big risk for somebody to, to open up to you and say, you know, I've got a problem or I'm feeling this. It's a lot easier for somebody to look at, you know, Hey, James is human. He's, he's had some troubles. You know, he was, he was, he told me that he was crying in the shower. I can, I can relate to that. I can share that. And, you know, that's, it's a good opportunity to, to open up. And, you know, that's, you know, you go back to that type A personality, you know, I'm a macho dude. I don't, you know, I don't show any weakness, you know, nothing like that. Wrong, wrong answer. That's, that's the reason we've got so many, um, PTS problems and, uh, you know, challenges like that because people are afraid to talk about it and, you know, have a, have a stigma. But I mean, you've got to be a, you've got to be a good family member. You got to be a good community member to, you know, to, to be able to open up and be respectful of that person and what they're feeling and what they're going through and then keep that confidence. Absolutely. Well, for people listening that aren't familiar with Operation Enduring Warrior or Task Force Sentinel, if you wouldn't mind, kind of paint the picture of what you guys do. And then you were talking about having all these people that, that um, you know, that, that are part of the family that need the help. How then can people help? How can they donate? How can they volunteer? How can they become a masked athlete? So I'll kind of give you the microphone now and you can paint that picture for the listeners. Ah, very good. Like, like you haven't had me talk enough already. Today. Um, <laughs> I got all the time in the world. <laughs> no, but thank you, James. This is, you know, Operation During Wars is really a fantastic organization. Our mission is to honor, empower, and motivate our nation's wounded veterans and law enforcement officers. And I'll tell you right now, we're uh, including fire service in this now uh, as part of their emotional, physical, and mental recovery. Um, it's it's all about giving people back that tribe. It's about giving them tools and giving them support and, and being there for folks, uh, not only to help support them, but to drive them to, to achieve their goals. Um, you know, we do that through a, a number of different methods. We have, we have various programs. Like we have, uh, we typically done obstacle course races. That's where we started. Uh, you know, we started, if you take a, you know, an amputee or somebody like that and then run them through an obstacle course race, you know, a lot of times they thought they would never be able to do something like that again, but in fact, they can still do it. You just have to do it a different way. So we're there to help them with their problem solving, help them to, you know, make sure that they're able to do it safely. And then you watch this individual at the end of the, uh, at the end of the, the their race course or whatever they're going to do, achieve a goal. And, 
you know, we always joke on the, on the masked athlete team, we were a gas mask that's blacked out. Uh, you know, you can't see it's a dark visor and everything else. And quite frankly, that's, uh, oftentimes I think the reason for that is so you don't see the tears running down my face as, as you watch somebody who achieve a goal who thought they would never be able to do anything close to that again. And it's, uh, you know, I think I get as much out of it as, as they do. But it's, you know, it's it's about being that that support structure and being that family that they that they need to get through it. And you know, just a few years ago, uh, you know, we realized that law enforcement officers were having the same challenges that uh, that wounded veterans were having. We created a task force Sentinel to to bring in that law enforcement element, uh, because, quite frankly, what we saw was that uh, once somebody is is either wounded or pushed out of the of law enforcement, they're they're gone. They, they have no more support. They have, you know, nothing, uh, nothing to take care of them. And what we tried to be is, you know, take what we've learned on the, on the veteran side and, and help apply that to law enforcement. And I think you talked about, about Drew Stokes and watched his, uh, watched his success. You know, quite frankly, we, uh, we started with, with the police force and then we realized that the, that the fire service was having the same kind of issues. So now we're, uh, this is the first year we're we're opening up the fire service, and we're uh, we're starting to see some fire service applicants come in. So it's it's really all about helping those honorees, and that's what we call all of our uh, our wounded uh, wounded folks that are going through the the process. It's helping them, you know, achieve that level of of success in life. And it's just, I mean, even if it's just symbolic that they're able to you know achieve a goal uh, that they that they didn't think they could. You know, it gives them, you know, the tools, the tribe, the community to be able to support them and push them into doing more and, and reaching out. And, you know, quite frankly, what we see is a lot of the, the honorees that are, have been around for a while actually become mentors or inspiration for the folks that are just coming into the program. You know, you watch somebody that's, uh, that's been successful and fought those fights and struggled with those things and, and how they're able to, to continue forward. It's, it truly is, truly is amazing. Yeah, it is. And if you, anyone's at a Spartan race and I just want to say Joe DeSena has been an incredible supporter of you guys. So if anyone's out there trying to think which of those type races to run, run a Spartan because I know they do great things. Um, but if you look at the mass athletes, you'll notice they're missing a limb or two. So yeah, some of these people that are helping these amputees through these courses are amputees themselves. Um, another area that I was, you know, educated on recently, I know it's a kind of a new, um, tangent for you guys is Operation During Warrior Archery. And I had Caleb on the show and obviously Lopez, the one-armed archer who does it with his teeth, which is just a crazy. Um, so tell me about that program. So yeah, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, we've got we've got several different programs. We've had we have a skydive program. We have uh, Warriors Voice, which is a public speaking program. We've got um, you know, like I said, we do uh, adventure, so ruck marches, uh, obstacle course races, things like that. And then in the last year, uh, Lopez actually brought the the concept of doing archery uh, to the organization, and it's quite frankly taken off like a wildfire. So no, no pun intended, James, sorry about the, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's for, for those who have either, uh, participated in archery or, or, you know, spent any time doing it, you, you know, a lot of things that, uh, that we talked about earlier, James, you know, that, 
you know, sort of that focus and that, uh, you know, being in the moment and things like that. Archery totally is that, um, you know, I had shot, you know, as, as a kid growing up, I was always a hunter and out in the woods and, and doing all that sort of stuff. And I, a year ago when, uh, when we first started this thing, Lopez was getting ready to go, uh, out to a competition and he was shooting his bow and, you know, just watch him shoot with, uh, you know, one arm and holding that tab between his teeth. You know, you better have a good dentist. Uh, and you know, we got to talking and, and he says, uh, well, you should, you know, you should come out and shoot with us. And, you know, my excuse gun was on rapid fire at that point. I was like, Oh, I don't have a bow. I haven't shot for 30 years. He says, uh, you're left-handed, right? I said, yeah. He says, good. I'll send you my spare bow. It'll be there on Wednesday. You got two and a half weeks to figure it out. <laughs> Sounds right. Lopez. Yeah. Oh, totally. But, but what I found in that journey was, uh, was sort of a piece you know it's if you're going to be good at archery it takes 100 percent concentration uh you know you you've got to be completely focused you know it's it's all about thinking about all the uh you know totally being in the moment thinking about your breath and your you know how you're holding the bow how you're going to release where you know everything else and and when you you know when everything goes right and you connect and you know that arrow flies down range and and hits where you're where you're aiming it's it's a great feeling of satisfaction and i think the the honorees that that have been involved in that sort of see that same thing it's it's something that gets you out of your head uh, you know you, you can't be thinking about the argument you had with your boss or your significant other or your kids or whatever you get in fact, I, I shoot about every day anymore because it gives me, you know, even if it's just 20 minutes, because it's something that I can decompress, I can think about just that, and then it resets the whole day. So, and I think that's what uh, that's what we're seeing among our among our adaptive or our honorees as they're as they're going through this is, you know, not everybody wants to run a an obstacle course race or go, you know run 20 miles or jump out of an airplane. But this is something that's very accessible to everybody. Um, you know, it's, it's adaptable. We can get folks into, you know, into, into locations. We can teach them the skills. We can, you know, give them opportunities. And it's another way for somebody to, to really get involved in something that they can, uh, that can be totally life-changing. It's, it's been really phenomenal. And it probably our most popular program that we have in the organization right now. Yeah. Well, I think especially when, you know, one of the, one of the instructors has no legs, the other one has one arm. I think it kind of eliminates right. some of those. There are reasons, absolute reasons, but eliminates excuses. So, okay, these, yep. these men in these particular examples have figured a way around the challenges physically they've had. So you as whatever, you know, whether it's a mental injury, a physical injury, there's there's a way for you to figure out your personal barriers to get to the point where you're able to do this as well. Right. Yeah. And it's I mean, you if you watch uh, if you watch Caleb and Lopez and, uh, you know, the the challenges that they've gone through and their their skill and their ability to to be able to to put an arrow on a target. They you know what? I don't have it that bad. You know, I'm, I'm sure I can figure this out. And, you know, and, and those guys are, are so grateful with their, you know, they're so generous with their time and their, uh, you know, their advice and, and everything else. I mean, I'm, I'm just, 
I'm a better person for having knowing them both. Um, and you know, just, I'm, I'm very glad that, uh, that we've, we've really got into this program and it's, you know, I think the, the amount of folks that are interested in it really show how versatile and successful a program it is. Absolutely. Well, people listening, I mean, again, I'm, I'm completely, you know, advocating, vouching, whatever the word is, there's, there's a, a handful of, uh, nonprofits that I adore. And obviously OEW is one of them. Um, how can they donate? How can they help? Where are the best places to find you guys online? Uh, well, we're, uh, we have a website, enduringwarrior.org. Uh, you can find a lot of our information there. If you want it, uh, information about signing up to be a volunteer, we call them Operation War- Enduring Warrior Community Ambassadors or OCAs. Uh, you can sign up there. Uh, there's information about the Mass Athlete Team. If you're interested in doing that, there's the application process. You know, it talks about the organization. It talks about our programs. Uh, there's merchandise there. There's ability to donate. So all of that is on our uh, on our website. We also have presence on uh, social media and and on Facebook. So you know, we're we're around. Uh, we definitely love to see folks join. You know, we're we're always looking for new volunteers. Like I mentioned, this is the the year of rebuilding. So we're trying to to build out the organization, and we need. You know, we need folks with uh, with various skills that have a little bit of time that they may be able to donate to the organization to to do some work to make things you know operate a little bit better or uh, you know help us out with some processes or things like that. So we're we're excited to have anybody who you know who wants to join, who wants to to make a difference in somebody's life, and and uh, and we'd love to have you. Brilliant. Well, I'm looking forward to the next race. It was actually nice. I think it was last June or July. I ran with um i know earl was there in in one of the races in in florida and i think it was the first event that we had been to since the you know the the lockdown of covid um and it was very weird there was no spectators everyone there had to actually be running and you know in theory we had to stand (laughs) whatever feet from each other but (laughs) we were all talking the whole time what an amazing bonding experience that is now i'm sure there's a lot of people depending on where they're listening and what their state has done this last 12 months that are yearning for that community and camaraderie. And I think this is a great place for them to go. No, absolutely. Uh, you know, I always tell everybody in this organization when I talk, when I talk to them, you know, you're welcome to the family. You're, you're part of the family. You know, I, I feel responsible and, uh, you know, daddish, I guess for, uh, for everybody in the organization. Um, you know, this, this is my family. This is, uh, you know, you don't have to be blood to be family, but you know, this is, if, if that's what you're looking for, if you're, you know, if you want to make a difference in somebody's life, you want an organization that'll, uh, welcome you with open arms and, and, you know, put you to work. If that's what you want, we'd, we'd love to have everybody. You know, we're, we're very fortunate, you know, James, you know, the opportunity to, to talk to you and, uh, and reach out to your audience. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, with your experiences, we're as we're looking to welcome firefighters into into the uh, into the fold. You know, we're we're excited to to be on board with you and and other folks. So thank you. Well, thank you. All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions. So we're gonna let you go because we talked about an hour and a half, and we're gonna be at almost two hours by the time we're done with this. <laughs> um, so the first one I love to ask: Is there a book that you love to recommend that can be related to what we've discussed today, or completely unrelated? Ah, that's, that's interesting. Cause, uh, I read a lot. I probably read between 20 and 50 books a year. Um, 
Oh, geez. Just pick just one. Yeah, can, I mean, tough. give me a few. It doesn't have to be just one. Um, so one of the ones that I actually just read uh, here recently was Leading Through Chaos by Scott Mann. Uh, Scott Mann does the uh, rooftop leadership course. Uh, he's a former Green Beret, uh, and he he and his his group talk about how to how to engage people and and public speaking, and they're they're a big part of our our Warriors Voice program. And just you know, it's because we're all such social animals, and that's been uh, you know sort of one of the downfalls of of dealing in COVID is we're we're missing that social interaction. So how do you you know, how do you get together and how do you tell a story that, you know, that has impact? And, and, you know, I think Scott Mann's book is, has really been a, a tremendous one that, at telling you and, uh, you know, help you to understand how to tell a story. So, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot of, them. I think, uh, uh, oh, geez. In fact, as I think about it, I'll probably have a list I'll send to you. There we go. Beautiful. <laughs> All right. Well, then we'll take that as the, as the recommendation. Thank you. What about uh, a movie? A movie and or a documentary? Huh. Okay. Um, you know, it's interesting since uh, since we've been away in, in COVID, I've, I've pretty much given up TV uh, because news and everything else uh, just drives me crazy. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be horribly remiss if I was not a fighter pilot and say, uh, Top Gun is an awesome movie, but, uh, no, I think there's, oh, geez, so many good movies. You know, you look at, I think, uh, like the right stuff or something like that. You know, you look at, um, you know, you look at those, those folks that have gone before us and the challenge they faced and the you know, the adversity they overcome and the unknown that they managed to push through, you know, especially as you're, you know, pushing the envelope and, and airplanes, you know, completely doing completely unnatural stuff and, and figuring it out on the fly, so to speak. So, you know, that's, that's probably one of my favorites. Brilliant. All right. Well, next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Ah, that's interesting. So I would, uh, Hmm. I would recommend uh, Chris Jacobson, who's my, who's now my number two here in in Operation Enduring Warrior. He was a uh, a Lodi police officer, retired as their captain. Uh, he's been a, a tremendous resource. Uh, you know, he's an outstanding guy. You know, he's uh, love that guy to death. He's been uh, he's been my right hand for better part of a year now, and and I don't know what I'd do without him. You know, we're yeah, uh, I'll dive. I'll just diverge for a second. Say I'm I'm very lucky. I'm I'm surrounded by a great uh, a great leadership team. You know, my, all the the officers and volunteers that that are around me are just phenomenal people, and couldn't do it without them. But you know, CJ, if you if you want to talk about law enforcement, uh, he's he's a great op- he's a great candidate. Absolutely, wasn't he the one that pioneered um, Task Force Sentinel? Yes, sir. Yeah, Beautiful. absolutely. Brilliant. Yeah, we'll definitely have to get him on. He was trying to ask me to be the uh, the masked athlete, but I think I'm I'm more helpful unmasked, so I can do things like this. <laughs> All right. Well, then um, the last question then. So, um, what do you do to decompress? You know, it's uh, you know, a couple of things. Um, you know, I think archery is one of them. Uh, you know, I think reading is is another, but 
but also working out. You know, I think, um, you know, I, I find, I find great satisfaction in, um, you know, overcoming that, that thing that says, ah, you don't, you don't want to work out today. You don't, you know, you don't really feel like it. Well, yeah, fat boy, get off your butt, get out there (laughs) and get it done. And, you know, I think that's, that's a great way for me to decompress and, and de-stress. And, um, you know, my, a lot of it is just spending time outdoors. And my wife will, will tell me what, if I've been inside too long, I start getting cranky. She calls it nature deficit disorder. Yeah. Time for you to go outside and get a little dirt on you. Um, so, you know, I think reconnecting with nature, being outside, you know, whether it's, you know, archery or just, uh, you know, an opportunity to, to get out and, you know, really think about what's important and not, uh, not be so caught up in, in everything that's going on in everyday life sort of helps me recage and and get back to where I need to be. So that, so I get back in the fight. Brilliant. All right. Well then one area I want to make sure we hit as well. We talked about OEW and finding them online. Are there any areas online that people can reach out to you specifically? Ah, well, I'm, uh, let's see. You can, uh, you can reach me through our OEW website. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Fortunately, there's not too many warshals in the uh, in the out there. So chances are, if you uh, if you look up that last name, you'll find me either uh, social media or LinkedIn or or wherever. Brilliant. Well, Troy, I just want to say thank you. It's funny, like I said at the beginning, we were kind of thrust together on the um, on the gala, and it was so much fun. But we hadn't really met before, so now here we are, two hours later. You know, I just really appreciate not only you you know leading us through your story but again like so many people having the courage to go to some places that some people find uncomfortable and we shouldn't find that uncomfortable but i feel like we've really kind of visited some topics that need to be pulled out of the shadows so thank you so much for being so generous with your time today no james thank you very much we really appreciate having you on the uh on the gala last weekend that was that was a lot of fun and you know i appreciate the it was neat to to get to meet you over virtually uh, for the first time, but you know, that was that was a lot of fun. And uh, I tell you, I'm, it's kind of strange not having the beard anymore. I'm uh, trying to figure that out still. But yeah, I'm you know, uh, like I said, I'm I'm very thankful for the opportunity to to be part of OEW, to be on this podcast, to you know, to have a chance to reach out and chat with folks like you. This is it's a great opportunity for me and a great honor. So thank you. For that.